News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Very busy day, I think, in a lot of households this morning because school is back in session. We're about a week behind here, and that is because of the Omicron variant. But there's a lot of concern. How safe are our schools with that variant surging through our province? Well, to talk more about this and all the preparation that is going into getting schools ready for today, well, Darren Danilek joins us now, president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association. Good morning, Darren. Hey, good morning, Simi. How are you feeling about this morning? Well, we've we've had a lot of practice for the last close to two years now. We've been practicing these uh, uh, protocols and safety measures and uh, making sure they're strong and in place. And I'm feeling that this morning when students arrive back at school, they're going to see a landscape that looks pretty familiar in many ways. But I know that there's going to be a, a higher degree of vigilance when it comes to things like uh, hand hygiene and mask wearing. So um, feeling that the last week we've spent to get prepared has been time well spent. Can you give us an idea of kind of what those preparations involved? How is it as a school principal, you are, what are you doing at the schools? In the last week to prepare or in the week that we face ahead of us now? Well, let's talk about getting things ready for today then. What was the last week of preparation like? What did you have to do in the schools? Well, the bulk of the time was probably spent in prepping for the potential for a, a functional closure. There would have been time in the early part of the week. As I said, we are reinforcing existing protocols and Students are going to recognize features that are uh, from the fall of 2020. They're going to return to structures such as uh, differentiated entrances where they're going to enter in different parts of the school, staggered breaks, um, you know, again, uh, strategies that try to mitigate the collection of people in the hallways and, and reduce those things. But a bulk of the time was very, very likely spent in preparations for the possibility of moving into a functional closure. And what are the rules around that then, Darren? Like, how do you know it's going to be time for a functional closure? It's going to vary from school to school, quite literally, and from, from district to district. The steering committee has established a, a sort of an activity signal, as they're calling it, if there's a, a lapse in attendance or a sort of a decrease in attendance of about 10%. I'm, I'm talking with respect to staffing. That, uh, that may be a signal for uh, functional closure. Of course, districts are going to investigate that you know, as it happens. Do we have the staff to, to come in and fill vacancies? And that's really going to be contingent on what we have in, in the field for replacement staff. And that varies greatly from different parts of the, of the uh, province. Okay, so who will make that call on a functional closure? If, if, a, if you've got too many people calling in sick and it's just not going to work, what happens at that point? Well, ultimately, that's going to be the, the senior leadership of the district, the superintendent and the team at that, at that level. Of course, in consultation with the principal and the vice principal, who will be the, you know, the first people to um, you know, engage with staffing when they're not able to, to come in, if they call in sick or, or other reasons. So the call ultimately is going to be made by senior staff. Okay. And so then at that point, what, what do parents do, Darren? So like, does that mean the child is home? Is there still work to do? Is, are some things going to move online? What happens? Well, we had a pretty good example of this last week. It's certainly here in the, the Fraser Valley in the lower mainland when we had functional closures due to the weather. It, it can be a short notice when that message goes out. I do know that districts try to make sure that that's communicated as timely as possible through as many avenues as possible. But it can be on short notice. And the move in this case, if it were a closure for uh, a functional reason with respect to staff, 
Again, the time spent last week in preparation so that a move to a different platform, whether it be an online or a hybrid, can happen almost immediately. Uh, some of the plans that I saw that were developed have, were very thorough, very detailed, considering everything from access to technology to roles and responsibilities at the school when, when uh, a move to an online platform or a learning at home platform had to be undertaken. So very, very detailed. So is that every teacher has to be responsible for coming up with that plan? Well, teachers and uh, school leaders spent, like I said, part of last week in making those plans ready. And um, ultimately, yeah, the teacher with their classroom assignments will be responsible for that that support and that connection, but certainly with the support of the whole team at the school, including our principals and vice principals. Right. Have you had, like, what kind of impact has Omicron had, Darren, on schools? Has Have there been a lot of staff calling in sick as a result of this? Uh, I've had a little bit of feedback on that regard, and yeah, there has been. There has been. So the prospect uh, first spoken of about two weeks ago that we may be facing functional closures, not only in in education that uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry spoke to you know, businesses in general being prepared for uh, you know, significant absences among staff. So we have already seen it. And uh, I think getting prepared as we have done uh, was you know, a, a wise move in that direction so that we could maintain the continuity of learning uh, as much as is possible. Um, I think many, if not most, parents really do want their children in school. And uh, it's an important feature in our in our communities to keep things operating, and to the best degree that we can, um, being prepared for those op- those ch- those times when staffing is a challenge, and it may be for a couple of days. Uh, it was was time well spent. So, what would you like parents and students to know this morning, Darren, as everybody gets ready to head back to school? Well, I think I'd like them to know that, again, we are practiced in this. We have for very close to two years now been operating in, in this, uh, this world where there's heightened, uh, heightened protocols and strategies, and we are looking for cooperation among our students and families, and by and large, I know that they are in. And we have practiced for a long time. We can operate safely, yeah, be prepared for, again, a heightened vigilance when it comes to hand hygiene, when it comes to mask wearing, um, be prepared to see things that you may not have seen since the fall of 2020, such as staggered entrances and and uh, different part different entrance ways for different grade groups, and uh, you know other other strategies that try to reduce the numbers of students moving through hallways, and stay in communication with your communities. Uh, pay attention to email if there are closures on the horizon, that that is communicated as quickly as is possible and. Uh, any questions, uh, bring them forward to your, your school leaders. It sounds like everybody in the school system, though, Darren, has to be prepared for pretty much anything to happen on a daily basis. Well, that, that actually isn't unlike most every day, even in the outside of a COVID world. That's true, I guess, right? That's the way schools are these days. Um, <laughs> well, Darren, listen, best of luck, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Anytime. It's Darren Daniluk, who is the president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, talking about the preparations in getting kids back to school today. I'd love to hear from parents, from teachers, from students who are heading back today. How are you feeling about it? Uh, now, as you heard Darren Daniluk say, he said, listen, we're ready for this. We've been doing this for two years. It's going to look a lot like it did, you know, two years ago. But how are you feeling about back to school? This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, it's interesting to note, and I've had a number of emails on this this morning about here we are talking about back to school and, and being worried about what's going to happen in our schools and kids getting sick and teachers getting sick. And the truth is that our booster dose situation, even vaccination dose situation for kids in this province is really lagging. Uh, in fact, it's like not nearly what I think health officials would like to see at this point. So we're talking about four kids here. Shots are available, but parents aren't necessarily signing their kids up for these vaccinations. Why is that so important? Well, we're going to talk more about the importance of vaccines right now, even against the Omicron variant. Joining us is Dr. Julian Daniel sunday willett a PhD candidate in quantitative life sciences at McGill University. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to join you all this morning. So tell me, what is it that you look into? Like, how important is the issue of vaccines right now when it comes to this particular variant of COVID-19? Uh, well, I think the, the the just because everything is so new, of course, you know, we're still we still need more information about this. But from my understanding of reviewing a a fair amount of literature, including experts in infectious diseases, that while the vaccine does seem to be a bit less effective, it still offers some protection against uh, against the Omicron variant, and particularly the severe disease, which is really the, the biggest problem with the, with the whole pandemic. Right. And what do you think has happened here, though, Dr. Willett? Because I think people feel like, well, I'm going to get it anyway. Uh, but what kind of an impact does being vaccinated have? So the, the, the key benefit of being vaccinated is avoiding having that severe disease. Because if we look back to the early days of the pandemic, for example, you know, the proportion of people who were dying from from this virus was pretty reasonably high. It was around like if we look if we look at a hundred people who all got the virus earlier on in the pandemic, it was maybe you know between three to five of those people would die from it. But after people get vaccinated, suddenly that drops down to you know it, it goes down as all the treatments are getting better. But if you look at the people who are vaccinated. Almost no one who are of the people who are vaccinated or dying or getting very sick. If we're thinking that now about Omicron, you know, what is this new variant? What's going to happen? You know, with that, you know, we're still, as I said, you know, we're still waiting on the data. But what we're looking at is that, you know, it still offers a pretty significant amount of protection for people. And what do you say to people who think, well, you know what, I'm going to get it now anyway. What difference does it make? Uh, well, I think uh, what's kind of what I've read about that, I, I, I personally, it's it's kind of like playing Russian roulette a little bit. Like, you know, there's, uh, you, you know, you could, of course, say that, oh, I'm going to get it anyway. But you don't know how it's going to turn out for you. I think you can argue that maybe a, a reasonable number of people don't get severely sick if they haven't been vaccinated. You know, if we if we just use the the you know dying from the virus for example, a statistic. If we look at rates now, you know, maybe two people out of a so like ninety eight people out of that hundred person group, maybe they won't die from it, but two people will. And of that other proportion of those remaining ninety eight people, they could still get very sick but not die, or they could have maybe mild illness 
but then they could have long COVID and, you know, not be able to taste anything, smell anything, just feel not very good for an un- unknown amount of time. That's, it's really, I, it's, mm. I, it's not a decision I would make personally. To, right. To just try to, so you're a PhD candidate. How fascinating is all of this right now in terms of your work, Dr. Ouellette? Because I, you must be thinking there, there's so much information out there right now. I think I think there's it's you know as as with anyone who's in research, um, I think my medical training offered me the opportunity to learn how to more effectively sift through uh, the clinical evidence, and my current research training is kind of shows me a wider, it provides me a wider perspective of what's going on. And I think upon reviewing everything that's going on right now, to the extent that a a single person can, uh, we're making headway. I, I think it's easy to get caught up right now in the winter, these ballooning case numbers and feel like, you know, things are gonna just gonna get worse from here, but things are getting better. Uh, it's just going to take a little bit of time. And, and if we all recall, you know, this is kind of how last winter was like, too. You know, ballooning case numbers, feeling like there's no hope. But it'll get better. That being said, you know, we also all have to do our part to ensure that it gets better and stays better. Right. And that's where I think the problem is, isn't it, Dr. Willett? Because I think people are tired, right? They've kind of heard this over and over again. They think, I've done everything that's been asked of me. Yeah, and I'm tired too. I, I I wish this was all over. I wish I could go and visit family, visit family more easily, friends. You know, not live in my, you not live in my in a very small cubicle or apartment or whatever. It's it's kind of an unfortunate reality of things right now. But you know, it's it will get better. But you know, we still have to do our part because I, I think part of what drove the whole Omicron rise is the fact that the virus is still with us and it's still around like new, you know, viruses change. That's just part of how viruses are still with us after, you know, after the thousands the millions of years of being on the planet. Uh, but how you mitigate that is, you know, doing what you can to fight the virus and people getting vaccinated, making it harder for that virus to take hold in all of us. You know, that's a major part in getting this uh, getting this pandemic to, to close off. Right. You've written about this online. You wrote about how you said vaccines are the holy grails of disease prevention. Uh, but you're saying, you know, what are we are we mistaken in the way we're perceiving them? People thought it was going to be the be all end all. But you're saying, listen, that's not the way vaccines work. I think vaccines are very effective, uh, but they're not the they're they're not the only form of management. So if if we look at you know even even before Omicron came around, you know we we all knew that the vaccines weren't a perfect preventative measure. You know, uh, I think the, the statistic used by Pfizer was, you know, if we look at the group of 100 people again, 95 of them exposed to the virus wouldn't get, wouldn't develop the infection. But there's still the five people that could get it. Uh, so that's, that's what makes doing all the other preventative measures so important because of 
what it takes to be able to get the virus in the first t- place. You know, the vaccine provides protection, but then it also, but in order, but even if you have that protection, if you're spending 30 minutes around someone who's, you know, like in a big crowded dance hall, for example, uh, where you don't know what's going on with other people, you know, that, you know, that can cause problems. So, you know, if we're, uh, you know, if we're, we're thinking about the big picture of all of this, you know, everything, all these, all these measures, you know, all these annoying measures, you know, having to stay away from our, staying close to our friends, you know, uh, closer than two meters, all that stuff. You know, it has it has a purpose. It's annoying. I, I can completely understand True. that. You know, I wish I could, you know, relax a little bit. Uh, but but it all has a purpose. And, you know, I think it's just like like is being reported in some nations. You know, this is just kind of becoming the new normal. Uh, and we kind of have to adapt to that. But uh, just because it's a new normal doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Well, we'll see what happens on that. I think that's what people are struggling with. Um, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, no, of course. I'm very happy to talk to you. That's Dr. Julian Daniel Sunday Willett, a PhD candidate in quantitative life sciences at McGill University. Also, a medical doctor, does a lot of writing online. You can read more of his work at theconversation.com. But talking about the frustration that I think people are feeling right now, especially with everybody heading back to school today. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I read an amazing story on the weekend. Just have to give a shout out here to reporter Dan Fumano from the Vancouver Sun. He wrote this. You should definitely check it out on their website. But the story is about a man named Brady Liebold. Now, growing up, Brady had a dream, like so many Canadian kids, to play hockey. And he did. And he was really good at it. But he also became, like so many other Canadians, struggling with an addiction that had his life spiraling out of control until he was homeless and in constant pain. But now, well, that's why Brady Liebold is joining us now. He's a retired hockey player, recovering addict, and host of the Hockey to Hell and Back podcast. Brady, thank you for being here this morning. (laughs) Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. I'm holding back tears uh, as you're saying that, full disclosure here, so I'm going to try to hold it together, but I'm super grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Wow. So why? What is it about hearing that, about hearing your story, that honesty, that that makes you so emotional? You know what? I've heard it a lot over the last couple of years, and it's it's something that I talk about all the time. I, I I get a lot of messages and things like that. I'm, I'm just in a very good position, but to uh, just to be in this position uh, on CKNW, I'm obviously living in Ontario now, but Vancouver, the, the lower mainland, very close to my heart. I used to listen to Vancouver Canucks games on CKNW way back in the day. So oh, wow. this, is, uh, <laughs> this is important to me. So I'm just super grateful for the platform, Cindy. Thank you. Well, I'm so grateful you're here because the message that you have, Brady, I mean, your story, Dan did an amazing job of writing about it. Um, and, and I know you reached out to him because you had run into him before because he had reported on your case when you were essentially on your way to jail. And Brady, you describe your child and you're growing up and everything as good, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I suffered some childhood trauma that, that kind of put me on a on a, maybe a bit of a, 
a convoluted path to say the least. Uh, however, um, if you if you look past that, which is sometimes difficult, uh, it's very easy to see that my childhood was very good. Um, my parents were separated, but um, you know I lived with my dad the majority of the time. But I had very good relationships with both my parents, and um, you know I had the opportunity to play hockey, and, and not many kids have that opportunity. And I had so many other opportunities and friendships, and um, on the outside everything looked good. And, and I always made sure that that that's the way it was because I never wanted anybody to know um, about that childhood trauma. And then learning that early on, Simi, what that did is, you know, it, it taught me to kind of early on to just bury stuff. And uh, yeah. that's what I continue to do over time. And, and eventually my mental illness uh, turned into an addiction and, and led me to the downtown East side and, and Wally and all those other places before landing uh, in jail for a couple of years. And like you mentioned, uh, Dan, Dan did a story. It was uh Pretty uh, gut-wrenching to read behind bars, you know, front-page headlines, ex-hockey pro sentenced to whatever, two years in jail. And, um, you know, I've had stories uh, done on me over the course of the last two years from Sportsnet and Sports Illustrated. But, uh, you know, I just wanted more than anything to let Dan know uh, that, you know, hey, here's an opportunity to to share my story. Because you did, you shared my story before, and here we are six years later, and I was just very thankful that, that he was uh, willing to do and did such an amazing job, Simi. You went from, you know, I saw the picture of you there at a training camp. You were at an invitation to the Tampa Bay Lightning Summer Prospects Camp, and there you are next to Steven Stamkos. So you went from that to a few years later being homeless on the downtown east side, needing, what was it, $1,000 a day to feed your addiction? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a story maybe for another time, but anywhere from 500 to a thousand and that's the reality of addiction. And uh, it's a pretty profound picture. I mean, obviously Steve uh, Stamkos was first overall, he's an NHL superstar, but standing next to him in that picture, I mean, is there that big of a disconnect in, in hockey? I'm not sure. Like maybe his path would have went on the trajectory where it's gone and he would have been superstar, but just for anybody to be in that camp at all, you've hit an elite level of hockey. And unfortunately, yeah. I, wasn't the, I wasn't the only one uh, just in that camp alone that was already struggling with an addiction. Um, and in fact, the, the, the guy in the article you mentioned that me and another player were partying the night before. That guy is a, a guy from the Lower Mainland or BC as well. Um, and he's no longer here. He passed away of an overdose, somebody who was drafted by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And um, so that's why I really wanted to start sharing my story. Originally, it was yeah. to, maybe provide some hope um, to maybe inspire somebody just to say, hey, it doesn't matter how far down you've gone, you can always turn things around, but it quickly turned to uncovering stories of other hockey players who had taken their own life or who had overdosed, and the numbers are staggering um, right from the NHL down. We hear of some of them, but I've taken it upon myself to really uncover these stories, and um, it hits very close to home because I had multiple suicide attempts, multiple overdoses, and uh, it's not lost on me how lucky I am to be here. Uh, and I'm just trying to make a difference. Your story, though, and, and how you got there, Brady, sounds like, I, and I've heard this so many times from people, especially during the opioid overdose crisis, right? You had a knee injury, you had some painkillers that helped, and you said that soon you found that those painkillers didn't just help with the physical pain, but also with the mental pain. Yeah, and this is something that I try to touch on a lot with people and with uh, the younger generation, especially hockey players. Is something that I'm really trying to focus on now is, is educating and just letting people know because I, at the time, I had no idea. Um, a time when trying OxyContin for the first time, that high dose opiate, and 
you know, thinking, hey, this is going to be for my knee, I need painkiller, and quickly realized that, hey, this is working really good on my past trauma and my mental illness, and at least at the beginning, and it makes you feel really good, and I had no idea, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just like over time, it was instant, it was like as soon as I took that, that pill, that it was like, hey, everything's going to be okay, and I knew I was in trouble. Um, and from there, you know what the thing is, and I just hope people listening, if anyone out there is struggling with addiction, you don't have to do it on your own. I tried to do it on my own for way too long. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I felt like people didn't, wouldn't help me, wouldn't be willing to help me. And what I soon realized, well, not too, because it took me way longer than I yeah. care to really talk about. But when I was willing to do the work and do the right things and get brutally honest, that there's amazing people out there and there's, there's a better life out there. I love the story of your podcast, though, that you just, you wanted to talk. You didn't care if anybody was listening. You didn't think anybody was listening in the beginning. Uh, You just wanted to talk about it. And now look at it, Brady. Yeah, um, again, I use the word grateful because I'm not a thesaurus, but I'm I'm, uh, I'm just sometimes I'm at a loss for words and and sometimes I have to pinch myself. And, you know, I'm very lucky that I've had, some remarkable people come on from former NHLers and coach and big names right down to people that maybe um, have been essentially forgotten about because their hockey careers or lives didn't pan out quite the way that they wanted, but they have a story to tell. And those are some of the most powerful stories that you'll find in my podcast. And people come on there and I guess I've been, I was very vulnerable from the start and I didn't really have an option. My life was over. (laughs) It was either get honest and start making a difference or where was I going to go from there? And it's been very, uh, like I said, I've been very lucky and blessed. Yeah. Uh, but these people have come on and shared so openly, Simi, and that's you know it's nothing really just to do with me. It's the fact that people are are willing to share, and the people that are listening are are looking for hope more now than ever, especially with the with the way the world is now. And they certainly are. Well, listen, Brady, I can't thank you enough for joining us, and good luck, best of luck, always. Thank you so much, Simi. I really appreciate it. And I'm um, a huge fan. I've been watching you listening for a long time. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. Brady, thank you. Love the podcast. That is Brady Leveld. He's a retired hockey player, recovering addict. And his podcast, by the way, it's fantastic. It's called Hockey to Hell and Back. You should be listening to it. It's now available everywhere. When he first started it, he was like, he said he was in his car. He had this terrible pair of old headphones that he was using. Well, now he is invested. People are coming on. People are listening. And his message is such an important one, especially as we deal with this opioid overdose crisis. If he can get through to one person, it is worth it. Listen to the Hockey to Hell and Back podcast. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh boy, it was windy on Friday. Undoubtedly, you felt it, you experienced it, and you probably by now have seen some of the damage caused by it. The wind combined with a king tide did a lot of damage to the seawall all along Stanley Park. Just absolute, just in pieces crumbs, really. And also in West Vancouver, where the tide was so strong there, it damaged both the Ambleside and Dunderave piers. The question now is, well, what to do with this moving forward? Do we just fix it and carry on? But do we stop and think about, well, wait a minute, if it happened now, it could happen again. How do we protect these areas from that kind of damage in the future? Joining us now is Donna Power, Director of Community Relations and Communications for the Municipality of West Vancouver. Donna, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So what do we know about the damage there? How much was done? Um, well, our crews have been out since Friday. Um, they were out on Saturday and Sunday. 
uh, cleaning up the debris and uh, as we were removing the debris, assessing the damage. So there, this is some of the most significant damage that um, uh, we've uh, has occurred from one of these king tide systems. Uh, portions of the seawalk are open, but portions are still closed out in the Dundrave area. As we removed some of the larger debris, we found that there was more significant damage under that uh, than we had uh, anticipated. Um, the light standards and the wiring, so the lights in the seawalks have been da- have been damaged, and um, the dog walk is damaged. There are uh, large areas of the seawalk that the pavement has, you know, been ripped away, but they're open and and so people can use the area if they just watch out for the damaged areas. But we're still uh, the piers, as you mentioned, are still closed, and we're bringing in an engineer to inspect them. So the, there's three piers: the Ambleside, Dundrave, and John Lawson piers. All remain closed at this time. So, you know, we expect the king tide. We know that things can happen. But have have we seen damage like this before? Uh, well, I've been off the municipality for 21 years, and, and this is the most significant damage, to be sure. So, you know, I, I've asked, and, and it, it, according to the historical records, de- uh, records, it's been decades since we've seen something like this. Um, the municipality doesn't is aware. Like we know that this is coming. We've been doing um, sea level rise studies. We've done a couple of flood mapping projects, and and we did anticipate it. Um, there's a couple of uh, buildings we have on the on the waterfront that we've been putting. We put tiger dams around them every year. So a tiger dam is a giant tube that's filled with water, builds a dam, and it holds back the flood waters. Um, and this is um, the first year since we put up the Tiger Dam that there was just so much water that it kind of seeped under the dam and those buildings were flooded in the basement. So we know that they can't continue to stay on the waterfront. We've known that for some time. We've already done one restoration project for the Ferry Building Gallery, which is um, at the foot of 14th Street. And uh, we've raised it um, to accommodate for sea level rise. And that was a positive thing uh, to see that it was undamaged by this recent storm. So when you say you've done some flood mapping, then does any of the mapping or did it in the past show that these kinds of measures were going to need to be taken? We've done mapping in 2018 that show that in a significant event, Ambleside Water, Ambleside Park would be underwater, excuse me. And uh, this weekend it happened. So where do you go from here then? If that's what the map is showing you, how do you deal with it? Well, we've been, you know, when we talk about sea level rise, um, the the experts keep reminding us this is sort of a 100-year plan. Um, The district is doing a lot of things. um, And uh, so for one aspect is um, we're preparing a development permit area to, you know, give regulations to help all those homeowners that are on the waterfront. And, And we've already started with people who are redeveloping their homes to raise them. Um, as a protection against sea level rise. We are uh, developing a coastal marine management plan. We've had a working group of volunteers work on that for the last several years that council is going to be looking at in February that sort of integrates all the different aspects of the foreshore. How do we protect the environment? How do we protect the infrastructure? How do we protect homes? How do we protect parks? So there's a lot of planning in the works. Right. We've we've worked with uh, the other municipalities as well. So we're we're starting to... Um, there's a number of things. You've got to reduce your greenhouse gases, obviously, and stop contributing to climate change, but you also need to adapt and protect. 
Yeah, that's what I, that's yeah. what I'm wondering, Donna. That adapt and protect part. So, do you just rebuild those parts that are damaged, or do you stop and say, how do we rebuild so that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, you know, I I think that the concept of rebuilding so that it doesn't get damaged, the Ferry Building Gallery is a pretty good example of that. Um, it's not too far from where it used to be. It is raised up. And if we want to have infrastructure to enjoy in the waterfront, it has to be flood proof. You have to expect that it will be flooded on occasion um, and build it in such a way that it won't be damaged. And typically that's that you raise it and the basement is concrete and it's you use it for, for instance, public washrooms in the case of the Ferry Building Gallery. So the floodwaters can come through, they can drain and the facility is not damaged. So, you know, that one day of the year, the water can go through, but for the rest of the year, the community can enjoy the waterfront. Right. So then it, are you moving forward then? Is West Vancouver moving forward with the repairs? Well, the two buildings that were flooded, um, we actually don't plan to keep them on the waterfront. So the plan is to relocate those activities elsewhere away from the waterfront. Um, with the Ferry Building Gallery, it was we decided to leave it there and, and to raise it. And then we've got another um, uh, structure down there, uh, the Navi Jack House, which is... Um, uh, of a heritage value. So we're looking at plans to restore that and we would incorporate uh, protection against sea level rise when we get to that point as well. Um, parks need to be designed so that the floodwaters can come and then they can drain and we can continue to use them. What about the, what about the piers and the, and the seawalk then? Will, will those just be repaired moving forward? You know, a long, longer-term study is definitely going to have to um, be looked at in terms of the piers um, because they are expensive to maintain. So I think that moving forward, we're going to look at ways that we can keep the infrastructure there in a way that it is resilient and, and adaptable. And um, so we've got a master plan moving forward for Ambleside Park, and we have to look at all those aspects. So as we um, repair things, that definitely needs to be considered. How busy is it down there? Like for now, I guess you want people to know, like, please don't use these particular areas. Oh, it's so busy. It's so busy. Um, you know, we ask people to stay away to uh, let the crews do their work, but it's almost as if everybody came down. You know, the weather was beautiful yesterday. And and that whole Seawalk area in Ambleside Park, it's it's really a destination. It's a, it's a, it's a good flat area where people of all abilities can can go for a good stroll and and it's not hilly and despite the fact that we asked people to stay away there was probably more people than ever coming down to watch the crews do their work and express their appreciation right okay so a lot sounds like a lot more work to be done donna thank you you're most welcome thanks for having me donna power is the director of community relations and communications for the municipality of west vancouver so you they've got clearly planning for things like this but this one even was beyond the 2018 kind of flood mapping that they had been doing so they've got some work to do on repairing their seawalk area stanley park is another one if you've seen the pictures go to globalnews.ca and you can see the damage that was done here just it made the seawall look like nothing like little just little bits of wood and just broken up into pieces. That's going to be a lot of work to get that back up and running so people can use it. But the question, as we also talked about with Donna there, is how do you do that so that this kind of damage doesn't happen again, whether it's next year, the year after, in a couple of years? Do we have to change the design of the seawall to protect it? 
from these kinds of, you know, weather-related storms and incidents in the future.